Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father God, send your Holy Spirit that we might be your church, that we might be solely for you, that our lives may be holy, by the blood of Jesus we may be made righteous. Send your Holy Spirit that we may be a sign and a means of your grace to the world for the sake of our Saviour. Amen. We are um, approaching summer. You may have noticed that. The weather's got slightly better. Um, but when I mean summer, I mean the, the, the um, school holidays, the um, many things change in the life of the, the church. Many of us go away, so we try not to do anything um, too onerous when it comes to sermon series. Um, we try to do something a little bit more, um, I suppose, light, lightweight would be one way of saying it. Um, last year, we did the anthropomorphisms of God, which uh, that's, that's more lightweight than it sounds, the, the, the body parts that God's described having a nose or eyes or hands. Uh, this year, uh, over the uh, end of July, August time, we're going to look at children's stories revisited. So those stories that we seem to nearly only ever tell in Sunday school, which are often really inappropriate for Sunday school, and we never study as adults. We're going to look at them. So we're going to look at Joseph, his amazing technical dream coat next week. We're going to look at Gideon. Um, I can't remember. That. We're going to look at lost sheep because we teach lost sheep all the time to children uh, by the end. But today we're going to look, as you would have known from the reading, at Noah. This wonderful story that appears in pretty much every children's Bible where everyone dies. <laughs> what a story to teach our children. <laughs> everyone is dead, totally destroyed. But it's a story that I think we've stopped looking at properly. We've stopped wrestling with as God's people. We've stopped exploring it. Um, I've, sometimes it's a chore to write a sermon, if I'm honest. But this one has been an absolute delight. I've discovered more about God in studying the story of Noah than I ever thought was there. We don't look at this story. Um, when you're at Theological College, I was at Theological College about five or six years ago now, there's a, there's a wonderful time um, it's the best, it's the highlight of the whole year. It's called the Vestments Fair. So at the Vestments Fair, um, there's a whole, you discover a whole subculture that is in church where all these suppliers of church stuff turn up and try to sell uh, cassettes and stoles and such like to, to, to ordinance. And even the most the, the, the kids from the really cool churches where they always wear jeans and open net shirts, suddenly they become really excited by a, by a cassock or a chasuble and they get excited by dressing up. It's the first time that you kind of put on a clerical collar as you're trying it on. You're like, oh, this is real. I'm really going to get ordained. And one of the subcultures on that is stoles. So what ordination stole you might have? So this is my stole. It's one of the marks of being an ordained person. A, a deacon wears it across. I'm a priest, so I wear it like this. It reminds us that we're, we're servants, that we should wash Jesus, like we should follow Jesus in washing uh, the disciples' feet. So um, acts as a scarf, as a, as a, um, a, t- like a towel around you. Um, and there's a whole, lots of people spend a lot of time thinking about what should be embroidered on their stole. So I have the cross of St. Cuthbert. Uh, because my sending church was St. Cuthbert's Church. 
The church that really formed me as a leader was, was St. Cuthbert. So I have that on there. And some people, I know one person had bees. I don't quite understand why they had bees on it. But one of the stalls I saw on sale had Noah's Ark on it. On one side, there was a picture of the, the Ark just slightly starting to float off into the distance. And on the other side, there was a picture of lots of people waving the Ark off. You've got a stole with people who are about to die. <laughs> Why do we have that? Because we've forgotten what the story is about. We've forgotten the details of the story. Um, I get in trouble whenever my, I do bedtime and the, children's, uh, the Bible story for our children is, uh, um, is on Noah's Ark because I read the story and then I, I carry on. And then Noah got out the ark. He planted the vineyard he grew grapes, he made wine, he got drunk, and he fell asleep naked. And at this point, Kara's rushing in going, don't tell that bit of the story. We forget that the story ends with Noah falling asleep drunk and naked. We forget. Did you realize that Noah is absolutely silent in the story? Noah doesn't say a single word when building the ark. It's not recorded as saying anything. The first words that Noah is recorded as saying is, curse be Canaan as he curses his, curses his children right at the end. The lesson there is this quiet obedience of Noah to God, and indeed the obedience of Noah's sons to Noah. Um, by chance, we've been um, reading this part of Genesis in morning prayer. Mondays and Thursdays every morning, a group of us gather and we read a, chapter of the, a couple of chapters of the Bible and we pray together. And it's been going, we've been going through Genesis 6 to 8 this week, um, to which every day one of us has gone, I never realized that about Noah's Ark. I didn't realize that the animals went in seven by seven, some of the animals. I didn't realize that it makes a specific thing about rescuing those who sliver snakes, which is interesting. I didn't notice in chapter 8, chapter 8 verse 13, that it talks about removing the covering of the ark. Quite literally, it talks about unwrapping the ark in chapter 8 verse 13. So when the, when the waters subside and the ark comes to rest, Noah has to unwrap it which is a strange language, a strange term. So what can we, um, I'm going to take this off, what can we learn from the story of Noah's Ark? Uh, let's start off with some, some bad news. It will, it will get better, honestly. So firstly, is that sin is serious. This is what the central message of the story of Noah's Ark that sin spirals out of control. Genesis 3, it's one piece of fruit. The next story is brothers killing each other. Pretty much the next story is the whole world has fallen into sin and God has to destroy it. In the words of Anchorman, it escalates quickly. The whole earth is in sin. Let's not underestimate the power of sin to move us to the next level constantly. I've told the story about, before about how sheep get, get lost, haven't I? 
that a sheep just nibbles at a piece of grass over there, then sees another piece of grass over there, and before you know it, the sheep is hundreds of miles away from its shepherd. The same is true of us, that sin moves us away further and further from the, from the grace of God, step by step by step. Sin is serious and sin spirals out of control. Sin consumes everything. It corrupts all things. When we do Alpha, the question that comes up again and again is, why doesn't God just take the bad stuff out of the world? Why doesn't God just click his fingers in a Thanos-type way and everything that's bad is taken away? The story of Noah tells us the answer, because if he did, nothing would be left. Everyone would die. Sin corrupts completely. This is a cheerful sermon, isn't it? It would get better. Bear with me. And that, that is in the parable of the weeds. Jesus tells a parable. There's a field. There's weeds growing up. Why does, the, why does God not take the weeds out? Because he'll damage the harvest at the same time. Bad stuff is entwined in our world. If you take out the bad stuff, you will damage the good. Secondly, in Noah, we see this tie-up that I've spoken again and again about between sin and death. Those two things are linked. Um, I've been reading lots of commentators about this over the, over the last week. Um, and one very serious commentator, very academic commentator, out in the middle of nowhere says, you do realise that God doesn't use an alien invasion to kill off the planet. Alien invasion in the middle of this. God doesn't use an external force to solve the problem. God uses water. God uses the thing that is ubiquitous, that is is amongst the people. God uses the everyday. God actually uses the thing that brings life. God uses rain. Rain is good. It brings the harvest. It makes the grass grow. But too much of it causes death. Water is good. It's described in Ezekiel and Revelation. Flowing waters are the river of life. Too much of this good thing causes death. All that is good can bring death. Food is good. But it can be bad for us in excess. The same is true of all things. Sets, work, families, money. All that we have that is good, with the exception of God, too much of it kills us off. It can corrupt and destroy us. Right. Bad news done. Let's move on to some good news. One of the curious things about the story of Noah is that God doesn't start afresh. He doesn't start brand new stuff. Surely the logical thing would be, let's kill off everything on the planet and let's start again afresh. This time we'll make giraffes look a little bit less weird. We won't make snakes because we know that got us in trouble last time. And cats, we'll leave those out. God doesn't do that. While the nature of God is that he rescues and he redeems that he restores. In the midst of all this talk of sin and death, we can miss out 
The fact, the central story of Noah is that God rescues and redeems. He doesn't kill off everything and start afresh, but actually he restores the world using what was already there. Twice in in the Gospels, uh, Jesus refers back to Noah. In Matthew, he says, For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day of Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. That passage has been used to talk about how, how Jesus returning will be, will be catastrophic to the world. But the thing is, that passage is saying that Noah lived on. When God intervened, creation continued. The message here is that God loves his creation. And we can get obsessed in the story of Noah by the animals. Don't get obsessed by the animals. This is not a story about the animals who go in two by two or seven by seven. There were people involved as well. Always look at the people. There was Noah and seven of his family members came into the ark. They were rescued, they were redeemed, and they were restored. This is the promise of Noah that God will lead us to new life, that he will lead us through the waters of death. You see the tie-up in baptism there. He will give us refuge. He will lead us to a new land where there is life and joy. I mean, there's there's two things that set out the story of Noah. I think we can learn from here. Firstly, Noah was a righteous man. One of the things that sets Noah apart from everyone else is his righteousness. He was right with God. And secondly, he was obedient. And his family were obedient to him. Noah was obedient to God. And Noah's family were obedient to Noah. That's why we don't, Noah doesn't have anything to say. God doesn't say, Noah, build the ark, make it this thing. No, I'm not so sure about those dimensions. Do you really need three floors? Where do the seals go? Do the seals go in the ark, or can they just swim around? Rather, Noah just does it without questioning. I think this is the challenge for us as a people. Are we going to be a righteous people and an obedient people? Or will we drift off? For the story of Noah is a story about the church. This is a story about people. The ark is the church. A group of people chosen by God to sail through a problematic world and bring new life. That's the description of the church. 1 Peter and 2 Peter again reference this again and again that actually this is a prototype church. 2 Peter says this, and I, I cut, I've cut out some bits when it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and other, but it references other stories. But 2 Peter, redacted, says, For if God 
did not spare the ancient world, even though he saved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly, then God knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the last day of judgment, especially those who indulge in their flesh and in depraved lust and those who despise authority. There we have it. Those who indulge in their flesh, those who choose unrighteousness, and those who despise authority, those who aren't obedient. We're a righteous people, not because we're better than everyone else, but because we are saved by God. Noah was given a plan. He was obedient to God, even though he probably felt he was going to die as this, this wooden box was, was rocked around and buffeted by the, by the waters. He went through the waters of death, saved by wood, and then unwraps the ark. Do you not see the parallels with the gospel? Through the waters of death, baptized, saved by being in God and faithful to God to the point of death. Augustine links the wood of the wood of the, the ark to the cross of Christ. The unwrapping of the ark. Leaving behind folded grave clothes to go to new life. That's not in the commentator, that's a Ben Lovell special. That's a unique perspective. We are saved by the righteousness of Christ in us. But we need to choose to follow it and to live in it and inhabit it. Guys, we've got to become a people who take holiness far more seriously. Who hold each other to account. Who encourage each other on. Not with a pat on the back going, it's fine, but sometimes saying, actually, guys, you need, we need to step up our game and be more serious about this God who saves because the alternative is flood. And secondly, we need to learn to be obedient. Noah was obedient to God, even though it doesn't make sense. We've all seen the film Evan Almighty, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. He's building it, he's being mocked by everyone else for building an ark, just God said. It's probably what happened in the story of Noah. But what about Noah's sons? The ark didn't look like it looks like on the front of our notice sheet, where a nice little boat. It was a wooden box. It looked like a giant coffin. Noah's sons listen to his dad, who we know from the later story they didn't have a huge amount of respect for. Noah's saying, come on, sons, follow me into this great big box of death that looks like a coffin. Because we'll be there. Do you know how long they were in the ark for? How long were they in the ark for? A year. Well done. So you know, you're in the 9.30 service. <laughs> That's cheating. <laughs> I'd always say 40 days. But it's almost a year they're in the ark. Noah's sons followed their dad into a, a dark box of death that was wrapped up and lived there for a year. Are we going to be obedient to God and are we going to be obedient to our leaders? To our bishop? To our vicar. Yeah. <laughs> Are we going to follow 
where God leads, even when it doesn't make sense. The ark, I don't really have a strong ending here, the ark is the church. Rescued and redeemed, the glimpse of the new humanity that God is building. But the calling on us is holiness and obedience. So it's in 2 Peter. If you're able, you please stand.